Well, good morning one more time and happy July 7th. I know lots of churches decided to celebrate the 4th of July holiday last Sunday. We noticed that and we've chosen to recognize sort of our Freedom Day today. And that's okay as long as we, we do recognize the importance and significance of freedom, of course, as Americans, but far more importantly as Christians. As Americans, we experience certain freedoms because there were men and women who determined, no matter the cost, to create a free country where generations would be able to worship and exist as free souls. And for that, I'm eternally grateful, as I'm sure you are as well. But even better, as Christians, we experience freedom in Christ because he was determined knowing the cost, to set us free because of his great love for us. And there is, of course, no greater love than that. And no greater freedom that we can experience than the freedom that we enjoy in Jesus Christ. I was watching a program on television the other night, I think on National Geographic Channel, where this TV crew was embedded with a company of Marines in Afghanistan. And these soldiers were literally going out into Taliban-held territories and flushing out these terrorists and battling with them to gain control of key parts of the country. And through these opium fields and bunkers and underground tunnels and villages, they continually were encountering these Taliban forces. And they were engaging in some pretty incredible battles. These soldiers, so many of them so young and yet so bravely fighting to stamp out the enemy... Who, who comes against the free world, you know, with this evil intent, bent on imposing on all of us their religion and culture that is based on a lie from the enemy of our souls. And I'll tell you, I am really grateful that there are so many men and women who are more than willing to charge directly into harm's way, stare evil straight in the face, and risk their lives so that we can continue to enjoy the freedom to worship however we choose. I'm grateful for the founders of this nation who risked life and limb out of a desire to not only flee tyranny, but to create a home, a place where families can raise their children to the standards ascribed to us in scripture and individuals can freely spread the good news of the gospel, taking a stand for righteousness without censure or persecution. I'm very grateful for this nation, and I celebrate our freedom as a citizen of the United States, thankfully and joyfully with my fellow Americans this week. Having said that, I'm most grateful for Jesus Christ, his sacrifice, his charge right to the gates of hell, and the freedom that he affords every one of us, the, the opportunity to be eternally free, completely forgiven, and totally restored. There's no country, no constitution, or any creed that can hold a candle to being a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, a child of the most high God, the everlasting and all-powerful ruler of the heavens and the earth, you know, the creator of all things, majestic, righteous, just, and holy, the king of kings, and lord of all lords. I, I am a Christian, and that comes before and stands above all else. My loyalty lies first with Jesus Christ. My allegiance lies first with Him. My devotion is first to Him, and my love is for Him above all else. Because He is our source of freedom, and He grants us freedom because of His love for us. John eight thirty six. Jesus said, If the Son sets you free, what? You will be free indeed. Okay, so the video that we just watched said it well. The only way 
that we can experience true freedom is in Christ. And we talk about freedom in the church. We sing about freedom. It is definitely a theme for the church, as it should be. There are many churches that have the, the word freedom in their name. You know, Freedom Worship Center, Freedom Fellowship, New Hope Freedom Church. There are many. And so if it's true that we're free as followers of Christ, then let's talk about this freedom that comes only from Him today. Because we use the word freedom in church a lot, but the question is, what exactly are we free from? What are we free from? We just spent the last two weeks talking about freedom from fear, essentially. In Christ alone, we can live free from fear. And so, because we've covered that, living fearlessly, we won't go down that road anymore today. But you can see how all of these sermons tie in together in this series, how they all overlap at the intersection of His love and us. There are all aspects, all of these things we've been talking about, all these aspects of His love that we've been studying, and they touch different areas of our lives. But the point of overlap, the commonality that they share, is that they're all born out of His love for us, and freedom is no exception to that. Okay, We talked about freedom from fear, so what else then? What else are we free from when we live in Christ and when His Spirit lives in us? Let's turn to Galatians chapter 5, and we'll read the first verse. Galatians 5.1. It says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. So clearly, we're free in Christ. When we're free in Christ, we're free from the yoke of slavery. It says that, but slavery to what? We usually assume that this reference is talking about sin. Slavery to sin, and we'll cover that in a minute, but this passage is not, in fact, talking about slavery to sin. The yoke of slavery in this particular verse is referring to the Jewish ceremonial laws and regulations. In other words, don't be enslaved by the law, okay? And in place of the phrase, the law, we could insert the phrase, futile attempts to earn your salvation, because that's what the law had become for God's people in the Old Testament. And yet that's exactly what the Galatians were doing here as well. Paul says, don't be enslaved by that old way of living. You know, by trying to earn your spot in heaven by keeping the perfect law or by perfectly keeping the law. Because you can't. It's impossible. Okay, so here the Galatians were trying to live according to the law. And Paul's explaining to them that it's impossible to perfectly keep the law. And trying to live partially by the law is useless. So why submit yourself to the yoke of slavery of the law? Okay, now let's back up to chapter 3 in Galatians verse 23. And we'll... We'll put this verse we just read into context and we'll not only prove out this point about the law, but we'll look at the subject of freedom from slavery in a broader context because Paul covers a lot of ground here. Okay, Verse 23, Paul says, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So before Christ, we were imprisoned by the law. And when Paul talks about faith here, he's referring to new covenant faith. In Christ. Okay, if you back up to verse 22, he says, But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So Paul's talking about new covenant faith in Christ. He's not saying that there was no saving faith before Christ came to the earth. 
Okay, because there was. And Paul addresses it clearly in the same chapter. If you go back, we won't, but earlier in verses 6 through 9 and verse 14 and verse 18, Paul uses Abraham as an example of justification by faith. So just to be clear, in verse 23, when Paul says before faith came, he's talking about new covenant faith in Christ. Okay, that's just for clarification, for your own study. Now, for the next couple of minutes, as we continue to read through this text... We're going to see Paul address some other points here. And so we'll make a brief departure from the yoke of slavery of the law and discuss some of these other points that he emphasizes, all having to do with freedom. Okay, And then we'll come back around to the point of the law shortly. So verse 24, So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God. Through faith, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you're Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs, according to the promise. What Paul's saying here, he's saying that when you place your faith in Christ, you're free from your past. Okay? There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Paul says here, look, it doesn't matter where you come from. The old designations that used to define you no longer matter when you become a part of the body of Christ. I don't care if you make a million dollars a week or you make a hundred dollars a week. It doesn't matter. If you're in Christ Jesus, you're one in Christ Jesus. Whether you come from privilege or poverty, a Christian home or a broken home, right? Whether you went to the Harvard School of Law or the School of Hard Knocks, it doesn't matter because once you place your faith in Christ, you are one in Christ. Black, white, yellow, red, brown, purple, green, it doesn't matter. We're all one in Christ Jesus. And this is really great news because it means that we're no longer defined by our past. We're no longer enslaved by our past, by our, our upbringing, by our mistakes. We're no longer bound by generational sin. If we're in Christ, by poverty, by materialism and greed, by socioeconomic status, you know, by geographical location, where we come from. Paul's saying no matter who you are, where you come from, what your background is, once you place your faith in Christ, we all become one in Him. It's just one big family. And I love that. That fact, the fact that we're a family, should really govern. It should, it should really dictate how we act toward one another, how we treat one another, even when we're not happy with, not, with one another. Because we're still a family. And really, we do well to keep that in mind in the good times and in the difficult times. We are one in Christ, okay? We are one body. It's okay if someone is a nose and someone else is an ear. We're all part of the same body, so we can be different and belong at the same time. All right, chapter 4, verse 1, he says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he's under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles. That's a key here of the world. Okay? 
The elementary principles of the world. That can also be translated, is translated here as elemental spirits. So Paul's referring to the elementary principles previously followed by the Galatians, because that's who he's writing to, which for the Jews was the Mosaic law, and for the Gentiles was the basic principles of their pagan religions. And Paul emphasizes this later in verse 8. So let's keep reading. Verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Okay, so this goes back to the idea that we're free from the slavery of the law. Now, verse 8. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you've come to know God, or rather be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? The statement, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods, is a direct reference by Paul to demonic spirits that controlled the Galatians' former religious practices, okay? And interestingly enough, and we don't have time to go into this, but legalistic superstitions and demonic domination are often very closely linked, okay? So Paul is telling the Galatians here that when we're truly in Christ, we're free from demonic oppression and control. We can include superstition, legalism, generational curses, all sorts of mental and emotional oppression. Paul's pleading with the church here saying, listen, don't go back to that which has enslaved you. Don't go back to listening to the enemy. You know, to allowing the forces of evil to hold sway over your life. You're free in Christ. Doesn't that sound like a better option? I also think that it's worth mentioning, making the point that this was written to believers. Okay? Those who were trying to straddle the fence between the law of grace and the law of death. Between worshiping Christ and serving false gods. Between fully realizing their new identity in Christ and becoming slaves once again to their past and to the false gods that they allowed to rule them. All right? The church today struggles with all these same issues. This is as relevant today as it was when Paul wrote it. We want to serve Christ, but we don't necessarily want to give up the world. We want to be a part of the body of believers, but we don't want to let go of our idols. We, we want to be in the fold, in the church, in with Jesus, in the Christian faith, but we're not always convinced that we want to be all in. Because that might mean giving up some things. And I will tell you, quite honestly, it doesn't mean giving up some things. It means giving up everything. That can include things and people that make us happy, that make us feel good, but aren't a part of God's will for our lives. And it's not really that hard to figure out. Sometimes I think we like to make it more complicated than it is because we're trying to figure out a way to justify holding on to these idols that, that we have in our lives, our sinful relationships, or simply it may be something that, that just isn't God's best for us, okay? But here's a really simple litmus test for whether or not you should just jettison something or someone right out of your life. Okay? Just a couple of very simple points to remember. Number one, 
If the Bible says not to, then don't. If the Bible says not to, then don't. It's almost shocking to me how many believers, Christians, churchgoers, are trying to figure out, they're trying to decipher whether or not it's okay to remain in their adulterous relationships. As if there's some secret code that they have to crack to determine if God is okay with it or not. And the number one argument that I get from people when I point them to scripture, which is crystal clear on the subject of adultery never being okay with God, is always something about their feelings. How could I, how could I feel this way, pastor, if it wasn't God? You know, he makes me so happy. She makes me happy. One of my personal favorites, I get this all the time, I'm a better person when I'm with him. Oh, no, you're not. <laughs> you're really not. Trust me. You might feel good when you're with him or when you're with her, but you're absolutely not better off. According to the Bible, you're in fact playing with the very fires of hell. I don't say that in a cavalier way. It hurts me. That breaks my heart to see people in church who are playing with their eternal faith. Is there something, is there anything in your life that you've placed before God? The Bible says, you shall have no other gods before me. You know that anything in your life that you assign more value to than God himself is a false god or an idol. So I can just tell you, can I just tell you, straight as your pastor who loves you, I love you very much. If there's anything in your life that you think about, spend more time with, care for, invest in more than your relationship with Christ, get rid of it. You can always buy another one later. Okay? If he tells you it's okay, after your relationship with him is restored back to where it's supposed to be. And you know what? Even if not, if you have to do without that thing, that widget, that item, that idol, for the rest of your life, it's better to enter heaven without it than to allow it to rule your life for one more minute. Okay? I'm telling you this from experience. I have had so many idols in my life and I had to get rid of all of them. I had to let it all go. And I had to chase hard after God before I could realize his true purposes in my life. It didn't feel good and it wasn't easy. There, there's a real cost associated with following Christ. But it was his will for my life. And now I will tell you. And the people closest to me know I'm actually far happier and much more fulfilled than I've ever been at any point in my life. Easy litmus test item number two. Does that relationship, does that boyfriend or girlfriend or that material item in your life or that habit, does it cause you to become closer to Christ or further away? Because if it pulls your time and your attention and your affection and your focus and energy and passion away from Christ, it probably isn't his will for you. Okay, I can tell you that a life lived fully devoted to Christ won't look anything like what the world tells us that our lives are supposed to look like. In fact, the closer that you become to Christ in your life, the more misunderstood you will become to the world. Do you know that? The closer you become to Christ, the more misunderstood you'll be from the world. You see, Jesus confounded the world 
what he did, how he lived, what he stood for, it made absolutely no sense to the rest of the world. It confounded those who witnessed him. And the closer you get to Jesus, the more you become like him, your life will begin to look strange to those in the world. And the further down that road that you go with Jesus, the more misunderstood you'll become to the rest of the world. So, you know what? Just go ahead and make peace with that right now. If you're going to continue in him, make peace with that right now because he isn't calling any of us to mediocrity. He's calling you to be all in. And I'll tell you that to the world, that just looks crazy. It is crazy to the world, okay? <clears throat> There's a lot more to say about that, but we need to move on from, from now. And I think I realized in studying the sermon for this sermon and writing it that we probably need another week. So we may continue this next week, but let's move on. There's a lot of material to get through. To close this portion of the text, we'll go back to Galatians 4 and read verses 10 and 11. Verse 10, you observe days and months and seasons and years. Okay, this is a direct reference by Paul of the, to the Mosaic Covenant and the ceremonial law. So, so Paul finishes up this portion of the letter back on the subject of the Galatians attempting to earn their salvation. And then he finally says in dismay, verse 11, you can hear it in his voice almost, I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. That's a hard statement. Obviously, Paul is very upset here, almost distraught over the Galatians because they're falling back into their old patterns, their old ways of doing things. They're trying to earn their salvation, which is what they did up until Christ, right? And sometimes, I'm afraid, we do the same thing. Think for a minute. Do you remember the first time when you first accepted Christ as your Savior and you began following Him? Do you remember how you felt at that moment? How nothing whatsoever to do with anything. It had nothing to do with anything that you were able to offer at that moment. It was solely a free gift offered by the Father through faith in Christ. And you received the gift on His merit, not on your own. It's fascinating to me, but we do the exact same thing that the Galatians were doing. We come to an understanding of salvation and this moment of like overwhelming relief when we realize that his grace saves us through faith and that despite how we've lived our lives, despite the sin and the mistakes and the fact that we can in no way earn this gift, we accept the offer of salvation knowing full well that we didn't earn it and we don't deserve it. And it's this incredibly wonderful feeling of release and joy and acceptance and fulfillment. And then at some point, usually over a period of time as we live out the Christian life, so many believers stop relying on His grace and begin trying to earn our salvation again. As if somehow that could be anything short of ridiculous. I've done it, you see. When we live by the laws of grace and love, righteousness and good works flow naturally from our lives. Good fruit is produced, that's what the word says, because what we're doing and how we're living is motivated by love and grace. But because loving people and extending grace to those who don't always deserve it can be really risky and hurtful and is not always reciprocated, we begin to pull back our love and our grace so we can protect ourselves because we've been hurt. It's a self-preservation thing. And instead of loving unconditionally and living graciously, we just try to be really good on our own merit and in our own strength because it feels a bit safer and it seems easier for us to control. 
Okay, I can't control how others will respond to me. That's a bit of a wild card. But I can try to control myself. I can try to be good by my own effort. And so it's easy to resort back to living on our own strength, just like the Galatians did. And I can tell you, it never works out. It never works out. Why? Because we can never be good enough or righteous enough on our own. Okay? Now, jump to verse 21, and we'll finish out this portion of Paul's treatise to the Galatians. All right? Chapter 4, verse 21. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She's Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she's in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise, but just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what, what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but the free woman. And then, of course, we... We end up right back where we started, chapter 5, verse 1. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Okay? The yoke of slavery here, among other things, is the idea that we can continue to try and earn our righteousness by our own good deeds, by obeying the law. And as an ancillary component of this point, a supporting aspect, is the fact that there's a bit of backstory here with Paul, which we can't really get into, but it's kind of funny. I mean, with Peter. In chapter 2, verse 11, we find out that Paul opposed Peter at Antioch, which was Paul's missionary base for several years, because Peter and some of the others were, were falling back into the old patterns, okay, of the dietary laws of the old covenant. And so Peter, according to Paul, is negating the idea of justification by faith alone, because his actions are implying to people that Christians had to live like the Jews in order to be justified before God. This is fresh on Paul's mind when he's writing this letter. So Paul is keen to make this point to the Galatians, especially given his confrontation with Peter, that obeying the law and all of its regulation will not earn us freedom, okay? So up to this point, Paul's laid out the fact that the yoke of slavery can be to the law. It can be to our past. It can be to demonic oppression. So let's turn to the gospel according to Luke, chapter 4, verses 18 and 19, and see what Jesus himself says about freedom and slavery. Okay? This is a prophetic statement by Jesus, fulfilling what was spoken in Isaiah chapter 61, the first two verses. So Jesus says... In Luke 4, 18, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. In the Old Testament, this would have referred to those enslaved in exile. But here, Jesus is referring to those held captive by sin. Okay, likewise, he continues, And recovering of sight to the blind. 
clearly a reference, not only to physical blindness, but also to spiritual blindness. So without a doubt, when we talk about freedom in Christ and the yoke of slavery, we can include slavery to sin, okay? Jesus also addresses this in John chapter 8, uh, starting at verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We're offspring of Abraham, and we've never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Jesus couldn't be any clearer. When the Bible talks about spiritual slavery, the yoke of slavery, you can definitely include sin on the list of bondages that can enslave us, okay? And there's only one remedy for sin. There is no human cure. There is no pill. There is no program. There's no amount of goodness that you can muster in your life that will remove guilt or shame or sin. The only cure, let me just be clear, the only cure for sin is found in the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ at the cross. The power of the shedding of his blood for the sin of the world. And the only way that we can experience that forgiveness, that cure for our sin, the washing away of all our sin is through repentance and then placing our faith in Christ. We're saved by grace through faith. Okay, Hebrews 9.22 tells us there must be the shedding of blood for sins to be forgiven. Jesus Christ took care of that part for us on the cross. Thank the Lord. In Luke 13, 3-5, Jesus said, Unless you repent, you will all perish. There's no shortcut for repentance. We have to acknowledge our sin and repent before the Father. In Acts 16, 30 and 31, the Philippian jailer asked Paul and Silas, What must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Okay? Being freed from the slavery of sin means acknowledging our sin, repenting for our sin, and placing our faith, our trust in Jesus Christ. And just because we now live as Christians under the law of grace doesn't mean that we can live any way that we choose. And it's all good. Because grace just takes care of it all. No. There's still a requirement for repentance from our sin. And yet, my opinion is that this belief that we can live sort of however we want to and still be okay with God as long as we're happy and content and we love everyone is increasingly showing up in our churches both in the pulpit and in our congregations. And I'm not coming against any one church. I'm just saying I've watched over the past several years some of my friends, even some in ministry, even some pastors that I've worked with. If you keep up with some of the really well-known megachurch pastors, we've even witnessed some of them sliding down this gradient path that says that as long as we have love, as long as we really just love God and each other, that everything else, including our sin, will just work itself out. And I've watched, sadly, and listened to them interviewed. And when asked point blank if our sins can send us to hell, I've repeatedly listened to some of them say, well, that's really not for me to judge. In the end, love wins out. So come as you are, sure. Stay as you are, sure. But that's not what the Bible says. Scripture tells us plainly that we are in fact to judge one another within the body of Christ. And by the way... If our sin didn't need to be repented for, 
If we were all just going to end up in heaven, no matter what path we took, then Jesus Christ died for nothing, right? Why would he bother? Why would he bother to go through torture, the most heinous death you could experience for no reason, right? 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 13, Paul says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. We're talking about judging one another now, back on track, in the body. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning, listen, the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. In other words, I'm not talking about the world here. Now, he says, I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, that's Christians, if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, a reviler, a drunkard, or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders, unbelievers? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. There's so much floating around about grace these days. And you know, don't judge me. Lest you cast the first stone. We take scripture out of context. Clearly, we are supposed to judge one another within the church. Hold one another accountable. We are not to judge the world. We're to love the world. Okay? This issue of holding one another accountable and judging by our fruit and so on, it leads, it's a whole other sermon for another day. But listen, we're called within the body to judge one another, definitely in love. James talks about it in chapter 4. Jesus talks about it in Matthew chapter 7 and in Matthew chapter 18. And Paul talks about it in the epistles. Our motivation for removing the speck out of our brother's eye is always love born out of humility. And only after we've judged ourselves and removed our own sin. So he doesn't say don't remove the speck out of your brother's eye. He says get the plank out of your own eye first. Then you can see to remove the speck out of your brother's eye. Right? We're most certainly to judge one another and hold one another accountable within the body of Christ. God judges the world we don't. He judges unbelievers. Our job is to love those outside the church and love and hold accountable those inside the church. Why? So that by grace and love we can walk in freedom from the yoke of slavery that is our sin. We hold one another accountable to keep each other from sin. Enslavement to sin is as relevant today as it has ever been, as is the requirement for us to live righteously. Grace does not absolve us from the requirement of living righteously. Let's turn to Romans quickly, chapter 6, starting with verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us have been baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. 
Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Are we to sin because we're not under law, but under grace? By no means. Do do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one of whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness." You can't say it much better than this. Sin enslaves us, dying to ourselves, and walking in obedience frees us. Okay? Sin enslaves us. Dying to ourselves, walking in obedience frees us. Do you want to be free from sin? Die to yourself and walk in obedience. That's easier said than done, isn't it? (laughs) I've been on this path for many years. And I'm not done dying to myself. The fact is I probably won't ever be completely free of me and full of God completely until that trumpet sounds and Jesus Christ calls us all home. But that is his prescription for freedom from sin. Die to ourselves and walk in obedience. How do we die to ourselves? We acknowledge our sin. We repent of our sin. We deny what our flesh desires. How do we walk in obedience? Place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ and follow him. Okay? We have freedom in Christ from the yoke of slavery. Slavery to what? The law. Trying to earn our salvation. Our past. We're no longer defined by our past. Demonic oppression. Those evil spirits no longer have rights in your life. Sin. We're slaves to righteousness now instead of sin. And there there are a few others mentioned or implied by Jesus that we'll cover very briefly. I'm just going to run through these in the final moments of this message today, okay? Going back to Jesus' statement in Luke 4, the fulfilling of the prophecy in Isaiah 61. We never finished that. Jesus said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. We just covered all that. And then the last part of verse 18 and 19 He says, to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. When he says to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and then you examine what oppression that he consistently and routinely set people free from, it is clear that Jesus came to set people free, not only from the bondages that we've covered, but also from those who are physically sick, those bound by poverty, and social injustice. Okay? And, and for the sake of time, we'll just address these last three together. I expend, I know, a lot of my energy 
and sermonizing, talking to you about dying to ourselves and suffering with Christ, not only because Scripture tells us to do that, but because I believe that most of us, myself included, are far too fixated on comfort and security and prosperity in this life and far too little on storing up rewards in the next life. But the truth is God is intensely invested in lifting us out of the struggles of this life and providing us with good health and happiness and blessings galore in this lifetime. Why? Because he loves us intensely. The difference is, before Christ, we find happiness in serving ourselves. After Christ, we find happiness in Him and in serving others. Okay? We all want our children to be happy and healthy because we love them. And it's no different with our Heavenly Father. He's extremely sensitive to your plight at every stage in life. Luke chapter 14 and verse 1, we see that Jesus has been invited to a Pharisee's house for a meal on the Sabbath. And there's a man there with a disease. It says dropsy is the, the literal interpretation. It was our translation. It's a disease like where fluid gathers in certain areas of your body. And this guy was clearly had this disease. And despite the fact that the religious leaders there were, it says, watching him carefully, according to verse 1, and despite the fact that he was in a religious ruler's home, who would not approve of him healing on the Sabbath. Okay, Jesus took compassion on the man and healed him anyway. Because he was far more concerned about the sick man than he was about offending the sensibilities of the religious rulers who were hosting him in one of their homes. We get used to reading passages like this and we don't think much of it, but this was a really big deal. This would be like one of us being invited to a really rich, influential Hindu politician's house. You know, in India, where cows are considered sacred. And then when the meal starts, we whip out a big T-bone steak, put some A1 sauce on it, and feed it to a starving guy that happens to be there. That would be a really big deal, wouldn't it? You talk about offensive. This instance with Jesus was a really big deal. And Jesus knew good and well what kind of trouble he could get into. But his concern was for the sick, the poor, the needy. And it still is today. Verses 12 through 14 in the same chapter, it says, He, meaning Jesus, said also to the man who had invited him, When you give a dinner or banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. There are reams of passages in Scripture that demonstrate the love and concern that God has for the sick and the poor and the needy. And He's not just sitting up in heaven feeling bad about your struggles. The Father, by His Spirit, is constantly working, intervening, healing, providing, and meeting the needs of His people because He loves us. And when we die to ourselves and learn to walk in obedience to Him, He sets us free from all of the bondages that enslave us, and He provides for our every single need. That's the truth. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, 
whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you've revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble, and you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia... No church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts that you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Philippians 4, 4 through 20. We are free in Christ. Free from all the shackles that once held us down. Free from the grip of fear. Free from the endless struggle of trying to earn our way into heaven. You know, you're free from your past. Free from the dark forces that seek to destroy us. Free from the chains of sin. Free from sickness. Free from affliction. Free from poverty. Free from oppression. Romans 6.14, we read it. It says, for sin will have no dominion over you since you're not under the law, but under grace. And it's all because we belong to Jesus Christ. Okay? Let's pray.